Welcome to the Uncivilized Podcast. My name is Trevor Bohm and I will be your host. Every week or so, I try to get myself a fascinating human on the mic for you, someone who looks at the civilized world just like you do and says no thank you. Someone who wants to break some rules, to lead, and to bring their unique vision into the world. Someone for whom the status quo simply will not do. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. Please dive in. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. This is Trey Verboom, your host, coming in live from Nosara, Costa Rica. If you are new to the podcast, welcome aboard. This is a great episode for you to start with. If you are a longtime listener, I appreciate your support immensely. And also want to let you know that we're changing things up a little bit around here. I want to give you some insight into the process. Uh, I love this podcast. I love the recording. I love doing the solo episodes. I love everything about it. And we've grown in leaps and bounds in the past uh, two years. We've grown immensely thanks to your help, thanks to your support, et cetera. And now what we really want to do, I want to focus more and more on these solo episodes and using this podcast as a platform more so than social media. You know, I write a lot on Instagram, talk a lot on Instagram, but I don't know about you all. I just get an odd or uncomfortable feeling being on Instagram. So I've started signing off on Wednesdays, signing off on Sundays, but really love using the, the podcast as a way to get my message out. So instead of us doing twice weekly episodes, Mondays and Thursdays, we're going to go back to doing once weekly episodes, one week where I interview an expert like I have today, and then one week where I dive into a solo podcast like I will uh, probably still this Thursday or next Thursday. So just want to give you a little bit of a heads up if you feel like, oh, wow, they've, they've cut things in half. If you've been with me since the beginning of this idea, you realize just how much we've grown and went from myself alone to me and Melina to me, Melina, and Dave, and now to a team of almost 10 people. We have a certification, we have a coaching cert, we have an initiation, we have workshops, we have clothing, we have the podcast, we have Unplugged, we have a lot of things. And I want to be very potent in my message and very intentional in my message, as opposed to just being one of those people who throws the same shit out on every platform. And you're just like, okay, I found you on Facebook. It's the same. It's like, blah, blah, blah. So heads up, just want to let you know that we're going to be releasing one episode a week from here forward. They're going to be super impactful and super geared towards getting you the information and the tools and the value that you've come to expect from us. And today's episode is no different. Today, I have a repeat guest on. Uh, his name is Steve James. Some of you probably heard when I did um, an unplugged episode with Steve like two years ago. Steve is an amazing man. He's an amazing meditation teacher. He's an amazing brain. He's a men's coach or works with a ton of men. I'll say this part last because I don't want it to be the most important, but he's also Michaela Bohm's primary teaching assistant or primary teaching partner, I would say, not assistant, primary teaching partner. So I wanted Steve to come in and talk about money and talk about men and money because Steve's not a financial guy. You guys hear this for a second. I didn't want the standard like pay off your debt, you know, put your money in these three mutual funds or, or yada, yada that I would get from a financial coach. I wanted someone who works with men, men who are both broke and deeply in debt and men who make more money in a day than we will in a year or men who are post-economic, who have, you know, celebrities, rock stars, guys who have sold their internet company for a hundred million dollars, whatever we, we say. And I wanted to get Steve's take on men and money because Steve talks to so many men. He understands the nature of men more so than a financial coach would. So whether you are a man or you know a man or you're not a man, but you have to deal with money, I know you're gonna get a lot out of this recording. I know you're gonna get a lot out of this conversation. Uh, here's something else. So before we dive in, we're about to dive in. I also wanna let you know that I have this coming up. One of the things that I am most excited about as a coach and a teacher and someone who works with both men and women is my Kill the Nice Guy course. This is a six-week course that makes guys take a good, hard look at all the things that they're doing 
and not doing in order to please women, in order to please their parents, in order to please somebody other than themselves. This course has radically transformed so many men's lives. And truthfully, other than a tiny bit of, of, of marketing here has outsold every other course that I have already. And it's only been out for a couple months. So if you were interested, if you feel like a nice guy or you know a nice guy, please check out manoncivilized.com forward slash kill the nice guy. Go. Okay, let's dive into the episode. Here, without further ado, is my good friend, Steve James. Steve James, welcome back to the Uncivilized podcast. I think it's been maybe two years and you were actually an unplugged guest, right? You were, you were when we were doing it with the live audience as opposed to just this one-on-one. Well, welcome back, brother. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you here and hear your unique ways of looking at the world. Oh, thank you, Trevor. It's so nice to be back and to talk with you again. Thank you, brother. Uh, for people who don't know you or don't know what your expertise is, would you mind just giving us a little bit of background on who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah, sure. I suppose when people ask me that question, I, I generally say, if I want to pass the question off, I say, well, I work in consulting, <laughs> consulting. And then, then they'll say something like, oh, and then look into the distance in a kind of uh, vague way, and then I can make my escape. <laughs> That's usually what I say. And then, they, if, but if they keep asking, they say, "What kind of consulting?" Right? I say, "Well, all kind of different stuff: business things, personal things, you know, uh, interpersonal things, etc." So I suppose you could say that um, I have a private client uh, practice mm -hmm. uh, dealing with all the sorts of things that one has in private client uh, practices, uh, counseling of various sorts. Mm -hmm. But one of the areas that I and my colleague and business partner. Michaela Bohm, no relation, we have to say. Michaela Bohm, no relation. We have a, a bit of a specialism in uh, uh, high visibility uh, individuals, high visibility people. Mm -hmm. And they have the same problems as everyone else. But then there are some other interesting aspects that come from being, you know, high visibility or high net worth. Mm -hmm. sort of Beautiful. Uh, but if, yeah. And we also travel around, you know, pandemic notwithstanding, teaching workshops to do with embodiment intimacy, yeah. relationships. Of course, that's how we met uh, Trevor, one of those situations, uh, meditation, all, all things like that. So they're kind of two arms, I think. Mm. Private client practice, and then there's this sort of public workshop practice, which of course also involves things like podcasts, my podcast, Groove Viking podcast, or Michaela Bone podcast. These are so it's quite a range of things, to be honest with you. Yeah, beautiful. Let me ask you just an offshoot question. I, I know one of, the, one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you in was to get your take, which I'm always curious about, uh, around money, uh, specifically men and money. But would you mind sharing, if, you can, if, if there is a, a connection here, some of the challenges that high visibility people go through that people are now having to go through due to social media people who may not be high visibility. Does that question make sense? That there's some gem of like, hey, guess what? We're all kind of public figures now because anyone can find us and go, oh, I don't like your post. I don't like your thing. I don't like what you said. Let me critique you or judge you or attack you or whatnot, or even the opposite. Let me fall in love with you. Would you mind just sharing a bit of your experience in that realm and how it may transpose onto the everyday person? Yes, I think that's the case. Uh, I think I can see what you're getting at there. Um, and, you know, one of the interesting things about what you're saying, you know, I think maybe, I don't know, in the old days, if, if we can say that, but prior to social media and this sort of thing, to become a very well-known person, there, there are only certain ways you could do that. I mean, in a good, in a good sort of good sense, not, you know, being uh, some you know, criminal or something like that, but, sure. you know, become a movie star, become a politician, maybe a leading writer or academic or a poet or a musician, rock star or something like that. There are various ways you'd be on TV or the radio, right? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. And, you know, all, all these kind of things. But now you can put a YouTube channel up and go viral. You know, you can be a TikTok famous and all these different things. I think it's I think it's quite interesting um, what you're saying, and so what are the challenges that are facing us all of all of us? Gosh, I'm not sure if I can say anything terribly original about that. I think the problems of social media are, as as we all are aware, echo chambers, mm -hmm. division, mm -hmm. 
tribalism mm. uh, orienting to uh, an audience uh, that's out there as a, and uh, losing touch with the humanity that is mm. found when one's in interpersonal relationships, things like that. Maybe dissatisfaction. Just oh, maybe yeah. this now relates a little bit to one, <clears throat> one of the things you want to talk about later. A dissatisfaction with one's life mm-hmm. <laughs> because you think, well, shouldn't I be? You know, I could be bigger and better and more international and more well-known and uh, perhaps this sort of a dissatisfaction with the enjoyment of uh, living a good life. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if I've said anything original there, but that's what uh, maybe if you do you have anything else? No, I think I think I'll transition from the question to to one about your own personal relationship with social media. Given oh. that you seem to be, in my view, uh, very comfortable alone, very comfortable in private setting, very comfortable with your own thoughts and your life and your music and your meditation and whatnot, and you don't, it doesn't seem like you feel the need to be out at the club all the time, hanging out with thousands of people. I, I may be completely off base here, but I'm not, I don't think so. What would you say, Steve, is your personal relationship with social media? Mm, yeah. Perhaps to put a code on what I just said, what I mean when I say I didn't, don't think I said anything original, I think this idea of the negative effects of social media have been well said by others. Sure, sure, and sure, so sure. I don't have anything to add to that. That's what I was imagining in my mind. I was imagining those points and discarding them and gotcha, thinking, well, that's gotcha. been said better. That's been said already. I don't have much new to add. Um, personally, well, actually, I like both, you know, uh, in the in this, uh, we're recording this January 2022. So since this whole uh, pandemic can i say that mm-hmm. i think so. you can say whatever you want here yeah okay some sometimes people don't like that word but um <laughs> well for, it gets flagged or so you know yeah, anyway sure. okay but uh in the pandemic i've been here basically on my boat by myself most of the time and uh i love it but before mm-hmm. that for the last f- 15 years before i've been mostly with people almost all the time yeah and it's certainly yeah. my working life traveling all around the place i do like both if i had to choose it would definitely be solo mm. so my relationship to social media um i use it to announce podcast episodes um and things like that and that's about it these days um okay. i have a i have that extension on the browser that blocks the facebook feed mm. okay I, d- I only install facebook and instagram on my phone when i have to make a post about so it's once a week or so when my podcast comes out I'll sure. install it, make the post sure. and uninstall it, mainly because it takes a lot of time, you know, and uh, you find yourself going down these Facebook rabbit holes and, and you know, yeah. this thing. So, I, um, so I just delete them and I find I have much more time to waste on uh, other uh, fairly pointless activities, perhaps, but at least it's not Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> See, so so is it fair to say that you kind of felt the pull, like the standard trap pull of social media yourself? More as a time suck, I'd okay. say. Um, it's more the time suck. I'm not so, so sure of the just the perception distortion that can occur. Mm. I'm not sure I ever was that heavy a user, really. Um, okay. I didn't get too much into comments, comment wars, uh, mm-hmm. co- a lot of comments. I didn't get too much into primarily relating through social media, which is where I think some of those time, you know, plus I'm 35 now in 2022. So I didn't grow up with social. I didn't, I didn't have that as my default. It's baked into people now, isn't it? Young people coming up there. It's baked into them. It's part of, part of how they, uh, they conceive of the world, world socially. So for them, it's very different. I think for somebody of my age range, it's much easier to just not involve oneself in it. I find. Yeah, you you and I are both fortunate to have some memory of a time without it, right? I didn't get Facebook until my 30s, and so I clearly remember relating to other people without without it and, and enjoying life without it, and now returning to those states, being like, oh yeah, this is actually quite lovely and pleasant, and I don't need to be interacting with that many folks. I was I was just curious of your take uh, take of it. See, would you mind sharing because I get to see it. Uh, what was kind of the draw and the appeal and what are some of the pros and cons of a guy who lives full-time on a boat? Oh. <laughs> well, I will dive into money. Sure. Yeah. Well, I bought it originally because I was mostly in California, having had a place in London 
I was mostly in Canada and traveling a lot. And so yeah. I was never really at my place in London. And so I'd only be coming back for, you know, a few weeks in the summer, a couple of weeks over Christmas is yeah. when I'd be actually yeah. home, if you want to call it that. So um, I more or less at that point moved to California full time and got this boat as a place to put my books and coffee. Right. That's basically it, you know, <laughs> and kettlebells, books, coffee and kettlebells, you know, that's what I've got here. And that, you know, that, and I would come back during the summer and the, and the winter break when I wanted to have more uh, contemplative time, holiday time. I maybe do a long retreat, meditation retreat, which I like to do, things like that. Breaks, you know, so it, it worked well for that being in nature, etc. But now since the uh, March 2020, um, since the pandemic, I've been here full time mm-hmm. and uh, it's been wonderful. Just so wonderful. Um, there are pros and cons. Um, the pros are, of course, it's in nature. Mm. Um, it's just cool. It's just cool to wake up and be in a boat. It's so cool. And the light comes in, the sun comes in, and it's all the wood is kind of golden. And you know, you feel the little bit the movement of the water, and, and yeah. it's just fantastic. And it's small and contained, so I can't buy any more books, at least not that many books. And that's good as well. That's good. It keeps my addictions in check, you know. And uh, and if you don't like your neighbors, you can just move, <laughs> and you can go places. You know, you can drive around the whole canal system here. Yeah, you know, you, you never ending. And whenever you go home at the end of the day, you're home, and all your stuff is there. So it's it's great. Um, it's really fabulous. What are the downsides? Well, for me, there aren't any, but uh, of course, it depends on the, the person. Some people like the bigger space. They like the house. Uh, they like all that kind of thing. You have to, it's a little bit more inconvenient. You have to do maintenance. It's more difficult. Your basic necessities and so on uh, require a little bit more input than yeah. a house does, etc. Empty, yeah. filling your water, you know, patching up things that go wrong and things like that. Yeah, but um, I love it. Steve, do you move around? Do you actually like relocate your boat from time to time? Yeah, not in the winter. Because it's not so smart to do that in the winter. I mean, people do, but it's uh, sometimes the canal freezes over, mm-hmm. and then you can't really navigate because you know it'll strip the uh, blacking from the hull. Yeah, they call yeah. it sort of, and it's just awkward. Plus, there are lots of um, the closed sections of the canal when the water level rises, and so it's just unpredictable, more unpredictable uh, navigation. Gotcha. But in the gotcha. summer, sure. So I, I mean, I have a place in a marina, and uh, and then often in the summer I will go all kind of different places but i never leave home when i do it it's great i love it i love it all right man let's let's dive into money <laughs> okay and and i want to frame this for people who who are are new to you that steve's worked with and from my understanding people of every socioeconomic background from people who are just starting off to you know the, the highest net worth of celebrities and i'm steve's not a financial advisor we're not giving financial advice. Uh, don't sue us after this if you put all your money into a stock and it drops. We're not going to talk about that. But I'm really curious about just your your specific approach yourself of how you view money because there there are your your classic kind of cliches in in let's just call it our space of like money's just energy and you just have to be attuned to it and it will somehow fall out of the sky. Uh, to people who are living and dying by it, people who, who base their 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 personal worth on it, uh, who spend all of their time, you know, uh, acquiring it and never spending it. So I, I really want to just dive into broadly. I love how your mind works, and I think your mind works very differently than most people's. So I'm curious on your take on the whole spectrum, and we'll just see where this conversation goes. But starting out, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your relationship to money and did it have to go through any kind of process or journey like was it always the same etc hmm. yeah that's a very interesting uh question and yeah we should emphasize that i'm not a financial advisor so don't take any advice from me about this <laughs> uh it's important. everybody got that cool all right yeah. we're good all right okay yeah um well in terms of my own journey with money, maybe that's the right way to start, as you yeah. as you suggested. Uh, actually, it did go through an important pivot point at one point. My early strategy in my 20s, or, well, I'd say late teens, very early 20s, maybe first year or two of my 20s, was to, I had a little bit of an aversive relationship to it in the sense that my strategy was make 
as much as you can, spend as little as you can. Mm. And that's not a bad strategy. I mean, there are worse strategies, which like uh, make as little as you can and spend as much as you can. I mean, yeah. that's definitely worse. But that was sort of my general strategy. And I think that's a pretty good place to start. I think that's temperamental. Uh, basically, that would be my base temperament, personality-wise. But then I rapidly re realized that that wasn't really going to be a sufficient uh, means. And plus, there was a bit of an aversion there. And when I say aversion, didn't like to think about it too much, didn't like to check, mm. didn't like to pay a lot of attention to it, just try to be really um, thrifty. And I'm um, from Scotland, after all, we're good at that. We're known to be a very thrifty people. Um, and uh, I just, you know, trying try to be active and busy and making, making money to pay my overheads, you know. But so what I did was I made a list of I know uh, 10, maybe 15 books about money. And I started the lowest kind of book, which is in terms of your, where your net worth is, which is like how to get out of debt books mm. of yeah. basic debts. Now, I wasn't in debt, but nonetheless, I thought, let me start there um, so I can build the house from the ground up, you know. So then I made this list on my wall and I read each of those books one after the next, after the next, after the next. Mm -hmm. And it was mainly, it was, it was partly, it was two things, financial education, um, but mainly it was exposure therapy. So reading those books forced me to confront the issue of money. Now I make it sound like I had some big thing about it. I, wouldn't, I don't think it was a big thing about it, but I noticed that I wasn't totally at home in it. Mm. And so by, by doing that, um, I uh, metabolized that uh, uh, that um, block, if you want to say that, or that little bit of an obstruction. I don't want to overstate it, but like that. And you know, that's done by two ways. First of all, exposure, moving towards towards motivation, uh, towards uh, the, the block, towards the challenge. It's always better than having to respond to a challenge when it comes towards you. Try if you can to go towards it. So that was an easy way of going towards it. Um, I still didn't have to do anything with my own bank account, but I could at least read these books in order. So that was really good. So I started off like how to get out of debt, then you know how to manage, you know, your uh, spending, uh, budgeting, popular financial advice books for, you know, you can buy in the bookstore, right up to things like uh, books a bit more like on how to manage money and investing and things things of that nature Although that there were less of those maybe just a few just covering some key asset classes but the main point of it was to over overturn that uh inner game of money books too like millionaire next door things like that just mm -hmm. comes to mind for example mm -hmm. so that's sort of like a general book sure and sure. uh yeah that's what i did and it helped a lot it helped a lot it helped take the charge out of money emotionally it helped take the charge out of it, and it helped balance my own temperament. So my own temperament was a certain way. My own family um, upbringing or cultural upbringing had given me a certain uh, structure, personality structure, or whatever you want to say, or uh, attitude towards money. And reading these books helped to balance that. It helped to illuminate, oh, there were some good things about the way I was operating and not some good things. So it helped to balance it out and clear the uh, decks emotionally and psychologically so i could look at it in a more straightforward way i think that that was an important thing to do okay and has that laid a foundation that you've built upon or is that was that kind of like handling it and covering it and now you just live in a way that doesn't require more outgo than income comes in well then uh it handled so you know because there's all levels aren't there when it comes to money it's like um understanding mm. um of how things work and then also one's own emotional or psychological disposition mm -hmm. uh, like the inner game of money you know like that book mm -hmm. by timothy galway the inner game of tennis yeah. which proposes yeah. that in addition to being good at you know hitting the ball with the racket etc all the skill you also have to have good you know, attitude and so on right so they made an inner game of everything after that, there were so many books about that. Inner game of music, whatever. And there's probably any other game of money, although I haven't actually read that. Mm. Well, then it was, um, I learned a great deal being around people with much different experiences, much higher net worth, and, you know, experiencing their behavior and being challenged by that, feeling challenged by it, 
and discussing it with them or or metabolizing it myself and learning the lessons that felt counterintuitive and wrong from people who's who's who had much more should we say financial success than I did at that time so I had some friends like that I had some clients like that um and so I'm thinking of a few in particular and uh yeah learning from lear- being open to learn and uh, yeah, that's I think extremely important. Being open to learn mm. from others, and it's not going to feel right because that's the whole point. If it, it's they're they're in a different echelon, yeah, of they're in a different echelon of financial operation, and it's just a lot of the things as you go up are totally counterintuitive. A lot of the things, a lot of the rules that are important at the beginning, you have to flip them as you get further up. There's a lot of rules like that. Would you mind just? Um, sharing a few of those or, or some of the experiences that shed light on those rules being flipped? Yeah. Well, one is at the beginning of one's journey, it's important to control your spending. In fact, that's always important to control one's spending. But, and so how do you interpret that rule? How do you interpret that rule of control your spending? Well, at the beginning, it means taking an honest look at your spending. Often it means tracking, right? Writing down what you spend your money on and saying to yourself. Now, a lot of people say, oh, it's just a coffee. Mm. You know, besides, it helps me, you know, you, you go to work, you buy coffee. At least in UK, maybe it's more expensive than US. Um, oh, it's just a coffee. But it adds up. That daily coffee adds up, for example. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Or looking at your subscriptions, Mm-hmm. Reviewing your standing orders, as we call them here, your subscriptions, mm-hmm. and looking at them and thinking, do I need all of that stuff? And so there's this sort of uh, pruning uh, process that has happens at the beginning because you have to discipline also the impulses behind your spending. So the impulses behind your spending are what? Who knows? Uh, you, one, one might be bored. One might be lonely. Um, one might be uh, afraid. There's all sorts of reasons people spend. And so uncovering and beginning to discipline or at least expose some of those needs that are being met through spending and then try to meet them some other way, mm. you know, but, but spending to, because you're bored or lonely, well, you can spend. That's true. There's a lot of things you can do. You know, you can drink, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you can work out, right? I'm not suggesting that those are all equivalently useful things to do. You know, you can make, you can make some friends, you can do, there's many different things that you can do. Often I think we're driven to do behaviors based on, uh, legitimate needs mm-hmm. that are being met in the long way, like nuking an anthill. Mm-hmm. You know, buying a Ferrari will make you feel worthy, but there are other ways mm-hmm. that don't require so much money. I mean, right. that, of course, that's a bit of a joke. Uh, later on, however, in essential spending, that category changes. Mm. In essential spending changes. You can't just put all your money under the bed right? in a sack only buying the most essential things. It's also some, sometimes an important thing to uh, spend, to open up the uh, possibilities and opportunities, mm. uh, to open up different uh, situations, and to also experience yourself in different contexts. That might sound a little bit woo-woo, mm. but it's not supposed to. And, and I thought it was too, you know, when I started seeing the, the sorts of people I'm telling you about, they have a different relationship. What they consider to be essential spending or inessential spending, the categories shift. Mm. Yeah. So having having certain experiences, uh, meeting certain people, being in certain places, right. uh, wearing right. certain things, experiencing yourself as a sort of person who does a sort of cer- certain thing or wears mm-hmm. a certain thing. This is more in a game of money when it comes to uh, that higher end, I would say. Right. It's easy to rationalize your frivolous spending as the second category. Yes. So I think do it in order. One must do it in order. It's, I imagine it must be the same, Trevor, maybe you can say, for um, eating, right? Like eating for health and fitness. Right. I mean, maybe you can reflect on here and that, uh, on that back to me. Uh, if you see any connections there, I can imagine some between the sort of thing you do at the beginning when you're trying to get your health and fitness and diet under control sure, and the sort sure. of things that you do later on. Would there be something, some similarity there? Yeah, definitely. You know, Steve, when I was first working people through like challenges around food, we would say, you know, for the first 30 days, we actually want you to be very strict. We want you to be as minimal as, or as close to zero 
deviation from this diet as possible. And yet here's what, what happens 99% of the time. If there isn't a release of that pressure valve on day 31, people go fucking ape shit and they'll have like, you know, a large pizza, four gallons of ice cream, three pounds of M&Ms and some Swedish fish. You're going because their brain can't conceptualize or can't handle the idea that like, this is how I'm going to eat forever for the rest of my life. So we would say for the first 30 days, just to reset yourself, eat very clean or as clean as possible, as minimal shift as possible. But then you're going to have to strategically work in times when you're simply eating for pleasure, where no matter how unquote unhealthy that thing may be, uh, the food may be, it's satiating a different part of you. It's, it's like soothing you or calming you or you just enjoy it. And so you want to have it. And then what I would find is that over time, the, you know, I know this is a shitty word, but what we use it in that culture, the like cheat meal would get healthier and healthier. So as opposed to on day 31, I'm going to eat a whole bag of Mrs. Fields cookies. If I work through this process correctly on day 45, I'm going for, you know, a cut up apple and some almond butter. And that's my dessert. And so it shifts the, the, whole, the whole setting, but also doesn't make this feel like it's a forever thing, which most people can't handle. And so they flip back to their old yeah. ways and, and almost more detrimental of their old ways because they weren't eating a large pizza, two gallons of ice cream, M&Ms and sweet, like before. They just were eating uh, pretty shitty. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'd say the same. That's very interesting. And um I think there are perhaps some other parallels too, which is, you know, a fit and healthy body does not necessarily represent a fit mind, an so aesthetically true, so fit true. body, at least let's put it that way. There are ways of pursuing physical fitness that come from maybe psychological pain that do produce a physically, um, you know, impressive physique. And I think it's also the, the same the same with money. So one of the things is, mm-hmm. it seems difficult sometimes is to just keep that in balance. There are very wealthy people who you would not want to be like even if you could have the money. It's true. Um, and there are those who don't have much uh, who are very happy um, and yeah. happier than, you know, perhaps the average person. And so, you know, it's an important thing, what money, uh, but it's it has to be seen within the greater context. And I think that's, of course, easy to lose sight of. Hope you're loving this episode with Steve. I know I certainly did. I took a ton out of it and, and just enjoy him immensely. For you guys out there, I want to let you know that myself, Dewey, and Michael have another initiation coming up in April in Austin, Texas, and this time we have given Dewey access to horses. So if you just want to come meet Dewey and see what he does with horses and men, this is an extraordinary opportunity in addition to what we're doing with the other three or four days. I don't want to dive into the whole program here, so if you're interested, please go to manuncivilized.com forward slash initiation dash TX for Texas. All right. Manoncivilized.com forward slash initiation dash TX. Okay. Back to Steve. See, would you comment on the, that sentence or the idea that I won't, I won't color it with my own perception of just money is just energy. That's it. And so you have to just get attuned to it, or you have to realize that it's just this thing. And that's, also why we should be spending it. So we're telling the universe that we have, we don't have scarcity or yada, yada. Would you mind kind of going down that wormhole with us for a bit? Yeah. Well, that's a good example, I think, of taking a good principle and applying it in the wrong way. I think what you're hinting there, there's some truth in that. There's some truth in that. You could say that money is energy in the sense that it represents some sort of exchange of energy or value, an exchange of value. So it's like a, the money itself the, has no intrinsic value, certainly these days in terms of our currencies. Money has no intrinsic value. It's, it's just representative value. Mm. And it's, you know, so, so there's a good point there. Mm-hmm. And the other good point in there is that, yes, one's inner game or one's relationship to money, use the Timothy Galway phrase, that one's relationship to money dictates an awful lot about how you see money, how you relate to money, how you, you know, all this stuff. It's extremely important. It actually changes the way you view the world. 
your view changes your view. What a shock. And that's true. And it is also true that sometimes that a too tight-fisted an approach with money is not productive either. You can a little bit choke choke things. That's the case also. Does that mean that all you've got to do is just tune in and do your manifestations and then money will come to you? Uh, I'd be skeptical of that. Mm. I'd be open-minded to the uh, statistical or st studies done on such things. I would be interested. Um, but it, my intuition would be I would be a little skeptical um, that simply sort of orienting towards money somehow energetically was perhaps uh, would, would, be, would it be as useful a technique as saying, Maybe in conjunction with, if it helps you as a ritual mm. to orient you in the right direction, I think it's good. And then you have to work on basic things like uh, generating value. If you want to make money, you have to find ways of generating value. If you wanted to improve your uh, cash flow, you have to look for income sources and manage your outgoings, all this sort of stuff. You can't get away from that. You can have your head mm -hmm. in your clouds so, lo so long as your feet are on the ground. Gotcha. I think. Yeah, and I know yeah, some money... Well, people with some money, and they have some really weird beliefs about it all. And you could say, why is that? Are they justifying something? Who knows? But I think as long as you've got your feet on the ground, you can afford those, the luxury of, of, of such beliefs. So I suppose it would depend who's, who's saying it. And are they making money from telling you to think that way? If that's their main source of income, selling you the idea that all you have to do is think about money, well, then they're probably, that's, pro that's cheating. <laughs> that's cheating. You can't, you can't be a millionaire teaching people about, you know, humming money into your life or so with mantras. Right. If right. that's your source of money, it's like, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I see that a fair amount in the, unfortunately, in the coaching space which is oh, yeah. pay me and I will teach you how to make money. But the way I know how to make money is by getting you to pay me to teach you how to make money. Uh, and it yeah. se seems very circular and, and disingenuous. Uh, it I, is. I, it's it's yeah. horrendous, actually. It's, yeah, I think it's horrendous. It's, uh, it's really bad, that idea. Mm -hmm. That, that yeah. practice. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a terrible, it's a terrible model. And coaching itself can be so wonderful, but is rife with this sort of problem, this sort of exploitative problem where one is taught when one pays to learn to exploit others. Mm. One is exploited to learn the, learn the tricks of the trade to exploit others. Um, it's a real shame. An untested hypothesis, a strong desire to help with no real qualifications, a strong desire to help improve others' lives whilst one's own life is in a mess, etc. Mm. Um, I think this is very unethical. Yeah. And very common, uh, very, very common. And it's a shame because I think that strong desire to help is a beautiful thing. Yeah. I want to help. You know, I want to help. That's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. to, to see it occasionally as it, as it can be captured and used as a, to, to convert that person into a sale and then led down an, uh, some path like that, I think is a shame. Because that strong desire to help, I think, is, is a very beautiful thing. If yeah. one has a strong desire to help, of course, uh, well, maybe I won't talk more about that. But I, uh, but I, I, I honor the impulse, mm. even if it's tangled up with some other less savory things, and even if it's co-opted, mm. or sadly, when it's co-opted, down these exploitative routes, and they're rationalized. You know, the only way you can continue like that for most people is the rationalization. There's a lot of there are a lot of rationalizations that come along with those sorts of statements. For sure. If they don't if they don't pay a lot, they won't if they don't pay a lot, they won't commit. Right. Um, you know, if they don't have someone who's driving them to buy my program, if I don't sell hard, you know, they won't change their life. There are all these rationalizations, not many of them are sitting sitting there saying, mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm going to exploit people. There there has some mental gymnastics somewhere along the line that says, I'm really helping people with this. Yeah, yeah man, I see that. I see, I see it every day. Um, I, I think it's a different conversation, but I've seen it, yeah. especially in the, uh, we're going to motorbike going by here, in the female coaching space of, it seems to be mixed in with sexuality, which takes it to a whole different level of essentially, you know, you should just be having orgasms until money falls out of the sky is the basic premise but it's, so it's attractive. Uh, I see a lot of coaches slide into this area, unfortunately, 
uh, and it it hasn't yet landed in the in the male space as hard. I'll say, you know, no pun intended, that uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not launching programs for guys of like just stay home and masturbate, and you will certainly become a millionaire. Uh, when that program launches, I will I will I will let you know. Um, but moving forward, uh, would you mind sharing, in your opinion or your experience? How do men specifically deal with the transition? Because I've seen this a couple of times with guys in, in my own circle who go from, wow, I struggled making money up until I was you know, 35, 40, had a great idea, worked that great, a great idea for a couple of years, grind, 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 got a big payout. And now I've got 15, $20 million in the bank. And I don't know what to do with it. It's a, it's a mix between, I think, like a freeze to prevent the all-out blitzkrieg spending, you know, buy four houses and five Ferraris and, and yada, yada. How do you counsel people who are going to be coming into money or have just come into a fair amount of money on how to handle that as humans? Yes. Yeah, so it's not very, from a financial at like you should put some here and some there and buy this and buy this, but how do they how do they handle their own nervous system? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. It, it's a, yes, it's such a fascinating question, and it's very it's very, very individual in its application. But the the what it takes to make money, which is a combination of hard work and luck, being in the right place at the right time, and but hard work. Not always, of course, but mostly that's needed, right? So, uh, good, you know, good, good for you if you've pulled that off. Um, that's certainly, I think, impressive. But this, what you, you know, the skills of making money are not the same as the skills of managing your spending. The skills of managing your spending or making money are not the same as managing your money. Mm. That's the case. Those are different skills. Mm -hmm. And when one and one one has an excess like that, it seems that. Um, an existential crisis can occur. Who am I really? Now I don't. Now I can be whoever I want. Is the feeling in a way? Right. Who am I? Right. And there, there are some deep, I think, uh, insights there. What do people normally do? We can, we can maybe list some of those things. Well, like you said, sometimes people go a little off the rails. Sure, mm -hmm. their vices get the better of them. That can happen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people. Uh, well, let me put it this way. It seems like meaningful work, something meaningful that you can do, or give yourself to your energy to that's more than just you mm. that seems important it seems to be important you're talking about men for men to be involved in something that's greater than just their own enrichment right um when they're you know not, not everyone but seems to be important if one is feeling listless if you have a lot of money and you know what to do with it don't bother listening to me but <laughs> if there's a listless feeling i would imagine the basics so there'll be an inquiry based on what's meaningful to the to that person also meaningful relationships seem important to family community whatever the downtrodden whatever you want and different people weigh those things differently some people are very much uh relationships get their life meaning other people it's work life meaning some people there's some sort of mixture there depends on them and then uh for many an active philosophical or religious consideration seems necessary and i might include in that politics mm. For many, for many, that seems to be the case. What I mean by that, an active, philosophical, or religious consideration, which perhaps I could add to that, politics. Yeah, and and what, why would you say that? For tell me a little bit more. I'm, I'm getting, but I'm curious why you picked those three. Well, th those things are important when one is struggling. Philosophy. What do I mean by that? I just mean the way you view the world. Religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. philanthropy uh or politics and so on these things are you know these things are what keep you going in hard times your philosophy how you view the world um seems really important when you face challenges how you conceive of those challenges what gets you through that sort of mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. uh like i said for some it's work can get you through for some it's relationships for others it's a combination and for for some still some kind of religious uh, or philosophical consideration or some political or so on seems necessary. One wants to feel like one's a good guy mm. or participating somehow in the the meaning. It's a search for meaning, I think. Yeah. That's why one sees so many uh, wealthy, well-known people doing philanthropy work mm -hmm. or 
engaging in religious act, you know, becoming a Buddhist or something and sponsoring temples, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, it's yeah. something that one can throw oneself into. I mean, after you've conquered the world of money and success, I suppose Olympus is the next mountain to, mountain to climb, heaven. Yeah. Know, it seems, whatever the reason is, this religious instinct, it seems, it seems that's also something that people go for. But it can be very um, nihilistic and very, uh, one can experience a great crisis in a time mm. like that. What do I do? What do I do? You know, mm -hmm. uh, guilt. Sometimes there can be guilt, mm. a sense of guilt about one's success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or sometimes nothing changes and it doesn't matter if you've got 15 or 20 million, you need 15 or 20 million more. And mm. Yeah. So I think it depends on the person. Right. Would you have a recommendation? Like I have, a, I have a buddy that this just happened to. Uh, worked for a couple of years for a company. Got got a payout for it, you know, in the high eight figures, um, and said, you know, for a year we're doing nothing. His wife and like kid, like okay, I have a Honda or like a, a, a Hyundai Elantra. I'm going to trade that in for something a little bit nicer. But other than that, we're not doing anything for a year because we just want to know that it's here and, and kind of relate to the fact that our financial situation has changed without having to, quote, do anything different and, and having to disrupt our lives, the kids' lives, et cetera. And I thought, well, that's a really mature approach, given that it is a, a life-changing amount of money for them as a family to just sit with it and, and let it exist without having to do anything. Would you have your own advice in that situation? Well, I mean, like I said, if I was dealing with someone one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. it would be I, it would be much more. I would do ask a lot of questions. Okay, mm -hmm. so let, if I think of something generic, because there's generic and specific advice, right? Sure. And if I think sure. of something generic that might be at least food for thought, uh, that might stimulate food for thought, I would say what comes to mind anyway, and this is coming to my mind now. Um, I don't have sort of generic advice for people who find themselves to be suddenly multimillionaires. Um, it's very, it's very much more specific because, as you pointed out, well, are you single? Do you have a family? How mm -hmm. old are you? Mm -hmm. You know, what are your skills? What are your interests? Do you need to stop, or are you going to keep going? Does the money matter? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's your risk tolerance and general temperament? Mm -hmm. uh, all these things are important on the individual level. But if we talk about maybe more generically, one of the things one does when one's trying to get your money together is you make a financial inventory hmm. and you hmm. say, what are my incomings and my outgoings? You establish your starting point. Um, what is my situation? Oh, I'm broke. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's be specific about that. You know, hmm. what, what's the incomes, what are the outgoings, uh, what skills do you have, et cetera. You know, what's your job? It's doing it. Uh, uh, where are you? And then you cost out your ideal life. You say, okay, what's your ideal life? Uh, I want a mansion and all this sort of thing. Okay. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. But, you cost out your ideal life. If you could have an ideal life, well, I would not. I like to have, um, uh, you know, this much free time, or I'd like to have this kind of a job. So you cost it out. What does your ideal life cost? Mm. What does your ideal life cost? Not what does the life of a successful person cost. What does your ideal? I live on a boat, right? I live on a boat, and so that's not as expensive as living in a mansion. Although I can tell you, when things break, sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> But of course, not really, you know, so, um, so you've got to think, what's your, you know, what would you like? And then you start to explore. And sometimes people find they, they're a lot closer than they think. Sometimes they're kind of far away. But anyway, now you've established where you are and you've established where you want to go. Hmm. And then then it becomes a question of how to get there. And that's the sorts of things that we discuss, learning how to make money, which I think is really about learning how to create value or generate value, either through your skills or through what you can generate, create. You've got to learn how to manage your money. You manage um, or your budget, essentially. And you also got to learn how to manage the money that you've got when you've got it. What are you going to do with it? So th this is the basics. I think someone perhaps who, who's looking at a radical redesign of their life, yeah, opportunity to radically redesign their life out of necessity because it's not going the way you want to go mm. or out of some wonderful situation, like all your hard work has come to this fabulous fruition and you've got all this money. Um, coming right back to the basics, finding your why. What would you like Shut out the outside world for a minute and say to yourself, what would be ideal for us? Not mm. about how much it costs. Let's just figure out what would we like. Well, we'd like to live in this place. We'd right. like this. What sort of schooling would you like your children to have? Maybe orient around that. Do you want to continue working or 
or doing other ventures and product projects? How are you going to yeah. you know, think about how you want that to go, um, et cetera, et cetera? So, of course, what do you do with your money in terms of investing? You have to ask somebody else. Sure, but I sure. would suggest coming back to, to, to that. What do mm. you want? Surprise. Many people disconnected from what they really would like, what, what their why is, what, the, what, what would – it tends to be unexpectedly clarifying, even though it's a very simple uh, tool mm. to – uh, walk somebody through what is the basic um what, or rather what is your personal uh, preference what mm. would you like it to be you know, and then and come back to that and, and think about that for some time yeah i think that's a good start yeah you know steve i did an exercise i'm not sure who i don't know if it was a men's author but kind of an author in the self-development space said you know do this as an exercise what would change about your life if you actually had a $10 million gift given to you, would you do yeah. the things that you're doing? Would you still, would you still live on a boat? Would you still write? And it was a really interesting exercise to do because I think I did it two or three times because the first time was simply, I would change nothing, but just make everything a little bit better, right? Like I like my car. I'd get a mm. newer version of it. I like surfing. I'd buy one more surfboard. I would you know, fly business class as opposed to first, you know, as opposed to economy. It was just this tiny dial up. Uh, and then the creativity and sort of my imagination kicked in and thought, oh, I could start a project around helping people with this aspect of their mental health. I could open up this branch of the uncivilized and do some things with it. So in, if I, and I'm, I'm saying that to lead into this question of why do you think, or maybe that's not even the best way to, to phrase this. How do you help people move into the more expansive answers of that question and not just say, well, I would eat more McDonald's because I eat McDonald's now, as opposed to actually I may try filet mignon and I may hire a chef and I may get any, how do you help people move into the more expansive spaces of that answer? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's two things. One of the things that an exercise like that does is it allows you to think beyond your limitations by reframing what's possible mm. we, we unconsciously have guardrails based on you know uh our uh, where we what we have money money wise right and uh sure. you really have to think there's another game like that i forget the name of it now but it's a game where you hypothetically have to spend ever increasing amounts of money each day mm. and you go through it's supposed to be a game that's supposed to open up your brain in exactly the way you're you're thinking about sure um sure. and um I think, uh, like you said, first of all, uh, it's not my place to tell someone that they should be more expensive and more creative and so on and so forth. Like I said, you know, money's a thing. It's not everything. And, uh, you, you know, there are people sitting there with their robes uh, meditating and they're happy. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess great. You know, that's, that's, that's a very legitimate path. And yeah. there are people who don't need the, they don't want the money. It's not because they're, they have poverty consciousness. Sure. It's because they just don't care. And, you know, okay, great. But anyway, in that kind of a situation, uh, yes, I would, uh, first of all, recognize that it's not really my place to tell them where they should be landing with that kind of an investigation. And on the other hand, well, what I, let me tell you something I've noticed. What I've noticed is that people, when they come into that sort of a money, they gradually discover that a lot of the things that problems and difficulties and friction points, they can just pay for it to go away. Mm -hmm. They discover that. And uh, they get into a situation where they understand the meaning of their wealth in terms of its value to them. I've noticed that occurring. And that seems to be something of an education process. You know, mm -hmm. I think of people like actors. I think of people like uh, rock stars and so on, many of whom come from money, actually. But those that don't, they get a lot of money. They get a lot of fame. Mm -hmm. They gradually learn, it seems, how to navigate that. They learn it from uh, good managers. Sometimes they have mentors. Sometimes they have friends. They pick it up. They're usually highly intelligent and very socially switched on, these sort of people. They pick it up when they start to move in those circles. They, they pick things up. They understand. Mm -hmm. So I don't have too much worries about someone who's able to land unless it's a minority of people through sheer luck i don't have too many worries about someone who's able to pull off that amount of wealth generation adapting to it okay. eventually okay. so i would have a faith in them and 
and faith in their ability to pick it up and know how, how to navigate that, but perhaps ground them, reground them in their own why, their own meaning, and their own preferences, right. and give them permission, maybe that would be a way of saying it, or uh, to um, redefine their life. Mm. Yeah, redefine their life. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about where do I want to let you know. Redefine the whole thing. Yeah. I, I don't, I just, all I want is a nice, like you said, a surfboard and, you know, a hut on the beach and an underground bunker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> I actually would really like an underground bunker. I sometimes <laughs> joke that this, I used to joke pre-2020, yeah. this was my floating apocalypse bunker. Mm. Uh, my, fo- you know, my floating ap- apocalypse bolt hole. And it goes, you go five mile an hour in the canals. But yeah. the zombies in the old movies, they go four mile an hour. Yeah. So you're going to always be a little bit ahead of the zombies. Yeah. But I would really like a bunker myself. Yeah. I said, I think you'd do well in a bunker, Steve. Oh, it'd be so great. <laughs> there was one that came up for sale in, I think, Northern Ireland or so, one of these pre-war bunkers, or maybe it was a Cold War kind of uh, thing. And they were selling it off. It was amazing. It just looked like a mound. Mm. And then you could open the hatch and go down there. And it's... I don't know how many people are supposed to fit there. A lot. It's a sort of military military bunker in a sense. Yeah. With bunk, you know dorm rooms and this kitchen, everything like that. I thought, oh, if only I had, you know, <laughs> the means. May, may I, I ask was, what the price was for that bunker? If you remember, I don't. I don't recall, but I recall it being beyond my means at the time. Okay. I would yeah. love to be an eccentric billionaire. Yeah. You know, but unlike other eccentric billionaires who we know who are changing the world of technology and doing all these amazing things. I'd probably be one of those ones. Well, I'd have a beard, no doubt. And I'd, I'd have the swankiest bunker. It would be so amazing. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> Brother, can I ask you one more question before yeah. we, we sign off? And this is specifically, I think this is, will be valuable to men specifically, where you said in order to generate more income, you need to add value. And one of the things that pops up when I, I say something similar to guys is I don't know what that value is that I can bring. And I, we're not going down the purpose rabbit hole, but would you, in your experience of working with thousands of men over the years, what is the guidance or permission or whatever we want to call it that you or, or refocusing that you'll share with them just to get them to start being more curious about ways they can add value? Yeah. yeah, I think purpose or meaning. Yeah, like you say, uh, it, it, those are important things to think about. What are your values? I like to think in terms of values mm. uh, also. What are your values? And there are ways that you can uh, uncover those, but that's not what you're asking. How to add value? Well, I mean, that that is what it's all about most of the time when it comes to making money. There has to be some way in which you have something or you're able to to produce something yourself or in some company situation where the people want, are willing to pay for it. And, and you think, well, how do I get people to buy my stuff? Well, that's one way of thinking about it. The mm. other way of thinking about it is how can I get something that people want to buy? Mm. And yeah. how can I solve some problem or something like this? That's entrepreneurial. Or if you're a, an engineer or, or a doctor or something like this, well, you, you have value, you have a skill set, and you, ha- you're tr- you have some training or other, and you have, and you're able to uh, do your doctor thing or you're able to engineer something. And so this is also a great way of thinking about it. So if you're an employee kind of scenario in those cases, well, you, you, ha- you, you, you have to inventory your skills and attempt, attempt to uh, understand what it exactly is you're bringing to the table. If someone's paying you for something, then there's something you're doing. Uh, and then you, you start from there and you start to think a little broader, think a little wider mm-hmm. and think a little bit more forward and how can you um, become more valuable in that situation? How can you add more value in that company or in that role, um, even if that means eventually moving somewhere else? One, one's thinking of that. So always orienting rather than how can I get more. It's like how can I uh, actually be better and give more? That's, I think, a good starting place. And then, of course, there is negotiation, salary negotiation. That's an important skill to learn. There is, of course, um, sales, marketing. Blah blah blah. All that sort of stuff is really important. All that stuff becomes much much easier and straightforward if 
you have you're confident, clear, and investing in your ability to generate value. And that value can come in the form of, like I said, you have some skills, you're able to make things more convenient, um, you're able to offer them something that they actually want, perhaps something they didn't know they wanted till they saw it. Okay. Mm. But that's the idea. Yeah, I learned that a long time ago to focus on value, generating value. If you become an expert at seeing ways to add value, that becomes your expertise, that becomes your focus, then uh, money, not, it's not all there is to it, but it becomes easier, I think. It becomes easier, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that, brother. Uh, appreciate your time, man. Appreciate you coming in. I know this is going to be super valuable for the men who, who have listened to us so far. Steve, if people want to get more of you or find more of you or, you know, locate your bunker or find ways that you're hanging out, where, where is the best place to interact with you or to get more of you? Is it your podcast? Yeah, probably. Yeah. GuruViking.com is the podcast. Okay. Uh, but if, if I, you can't find the bunker, that's the whole point of it. Right? It's secret. It's secret. There will be other mounds nearby, which are not actually bunkers to throw people off the scent. There'll be things like that. I'll have a picture of myself near another bunker, which I'll put on social media. That, the whole point. I could be in a bunker right now, a boat shaped bunker. This is, this is all fact. All fact. Uh, we, we, sh- we shouldn't obscure, should we? GuruViking.com is my website guruviking.com never mind all that about the bunkers yeah (laughs) and is there anything you have coming up from a teaching perspective or anything you and michaela have coming up that you'd love to share yeah um thanks for asking that michaela and i michaela bowen that's michaela bohm.com b-o-e-h-m same name as same spelling i don't need to tell them that here do i (laughs) spell it like trevor trevor's name and um yeah, we teach together all kind of workshops, teacher training. We have one coming up soonish. I think when this, by the time this comes out, nonlinear movement teacher training. It's this method that Michaela has developed. It's a tremendously powerful embodiment method, and so on. And I'm always running meditation courses and courses on how to get a practice, how to mm-hmm. get a daily practice together, and so on. And my podcast, as you mentioned, it's got lots of great interviews on there. And Michaela has a podcast too, MichaelaBohm.com. B O E H M. You knew that already. That's got all of Michaela's stuff um, on it. Those are the places. If by this point, for some reason, you're still interested in hearing more, then those are the places to go. <laughs> well, brother, thank you again. I, I always love getting your take on things and just getting to connect with you. I appreciate you coming on and, and know this is going to help guys a ton. I look forward to chatting with you again, brother. Cheers. Thank you, Traver. So this is a coda. This is a PS. Traver and I were talking after we recorded and we thought we have to say the other thing that Traver was bringing up, which I think is so important. Um, Traver was saying, he, he, he was recounting to me a conversation he'd had with somebody on the beach and they were talking about something, problem in their life. And all that it was is they hadn't learned a simple piece of information that uh, about working out. They just didn't know about working out. And that that's and it was a mystery to them. Mm. And actually, I think that points to something very important, which is uh, community, friendships. Mm. Groups like, I think, group manner. Groups like that, where you're around other men, for example, in, in the case of what you're doing, uh, who you can have those conversations with. I think that's very, very useful. And yeah. you can filter the advice through, you know, what were we struggling with in, in our conversation? Not struggling with, but the caveat I kept saying is, well, it depends on the individual. When sure. you're in relationships, in groups like, like you put together, and yeah. you're able to talk to other men, meet them, different walks of life, different socioeconomic situations. Some of them are ripped and rich and all that. Some of them are not. And you can learn from them and they'll advise you. Uh, Men like to do that. It seems men like to give each other advice and mentoring comes naturally from relationships like that. I think that might just be the real secret sauce Mm. is getting around groups of men that you can, in in the case of men's groups, that you can have relationships with and learn from each other. I think that could be the real secret source. Yeah, it's, I appreciate you saying that, man, a, a ton. And not just because I run a, a men's organization, but because it's really interesting that men often won't talk about that. Or they, they don't feel like, in, in common culture, of sitting down with your buddies and being like, hey, how did you get out of debt? Or, hey, I've got you know five grand that just came in. What do you think I should do with it? Or... Like, how did you pay off your credit card or, or something like that? Or just being honest about where we are uh, financially is very, very rare to have an open conversation 
uh, especially amongst dudes. So I really appreciate you bringing that up, Steve. Yeah, and I think that's why a group like you run, we also run men's groups, Michaela and I, groups like that are useful if they're struck. Now, some men's groups are these like ideological, you know, agenda driven uh, in all agendas, by the way, all ideologies. I'm not thinking of one particular leaning. You get all sorts. And and, and it's un- I think that's unhelpful in a way. It's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit um, fantasy land. Sort of breathe into your ball, you know, and, you know, whatever, fuck the world kind of stuff you hear. And that's just, I think, fantasy. Mm. But um, if one structures it around relationships and one structures it around, or at least has part of it, relationships, facilitating those kind of conversations, when, when one facilitates those conversations to an extent, yeah. What I mean by yeah. that, structuring in such a way that the opening is there to have those conversations with some structure. I found my experience, men are very happy to talk with each other, love to do it, in fact, and enjoy it. But you're right. It's not just doesn't come up naturally, generally. But boy, do people seem to like doing it when there's an opportunity that's structured by someone holding a container like like you hold or like I do also with Michaela. You know, we put those things together. I think that's uh, so valuable. So I think, yeah. Ask those questions of your friends, I would mm-hmm. say. Bring those topics up and just gently and mm-hmm. be the person who uh, introduces the questions like that and always start asking, what do you do about this? Or do you have any thoughts about that? And see what guys say. I think it's possible even to do in one's, you know, you don't need to form a group. But right. uh, I think it's amazing what can come from these sorts of conversations. Yeah, it's not hidden anymore. And it's it's like we used to talk about all this shit when we were, you know, in junior high. And then somewhere along the line, a lot of things became secretive and uh, and just not discussed. So awesome advice, brother. I appreciate that. Thanks, Traver. This is Traver Bohm signing off on another episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please give us a share. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in getting a hold of my book, man uncivilized whether you're a man or a woman please go to www.manuncivilized.com forward slash the book and get reading